I'm Cal Newport, and this is Deep Questions, episode 69. Quick announcements. First, there is no deep dive in this week's episode, but this is the first week in which I'm going to start filming select questions, sort of highlighted questions from the episode. So when my video page goes live, which should be in the next week or two, in addition to seeing video versions of all of the deep dives I've done so far, you will begin to see weekly uploads of video highlights of particular questions I thought were particularly interesting. So I will give more details about this video page once it's live, but the wheels are in motion there. So I'm excited about that. Uh, Announcement number two. The most important announcement, of course, of all is the fact that my new book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload, is coming out on March 2nd here in the U.S., March 4th in the U.K. territories and uh, later for other countries as those translations get completed. Later this week, I will be announcing the details of my pre-order promotion, but I will give you a sneak preview right now since you are loyal listeners of this podcast. I have created an online course called the Email Academy just for people who pre-order this book. If you pre-order, you will get access to that course. We've also set it up so that if you pre-order the book, once you enter your information, you will immediately get a long excerpt that that lays out a lot of the big ideas of the book and, and explains what the book talks about so that you can immediately dive into some of the concepts. The form in which you can enter this information, the details of this course, the excerpt, etc., that all is going online later this week. I will announce it on my blog and email newsletter at calnewport.com. I'll announce all the details on the next episode of this podcast as well. But I'm telling you, if you like this podcast, you are going to love this book. It's my magnum opus on working in a meaningful, satisfying way in a distracted age. Uh, so if you are thinking about buying this book, pre-ordering this book makes a big difference. And I just want to let you know, thanks is coming. And if you've already pre the book, that's fine. Uh, when we put up the form, all you have to do is enter your order confirmation number from the email you got from wherever you bought the book from. So stand by when you get these instructions, you too will be able to reap the benefits of the pre-ordering. All right, so more on that later. We've got a great group of questions to answer today. Of course, if you want to submit your own questions, go to calnewport.com slash podcast to learn how. Before we dive into these questions, of course, we would be remiss if we didn't first talk about one of our favorite sponsors here at Deep Questions, and that is Magic Spoon. I used to love, as a kid, eating those sweet cereals that were oh so bad for us. Magic Spoon has made that experience possible without the badness. I don't know how they did it, but they have a cereal that tastes great, but has zero sugar. 13 to 14 grams of protein and only four net carbs, net grams of carbs in each serving. That adds up to just 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. So you can enjoy that type of cereal you loved as a kid. You can have a moment of escape, which is the way I like to eat my Magic Spoon when I just need a break from all that's going on. And you can do so without the guilt. I've been mentioning recently that they have a brand new variety pack with some brand new flavors. Well, one of these new flavors is peanut butter. They released this as a limited edition flavor in 2020, and it kept selling out. 
So this flavor has gotten so much love that they've decided to keep it permanent. They've added it to their bestseller variety packs. You can now get peanut butter in their bestsellers variety pack along with fruity cocoa and what we all agree is the best flavor, frosted. So if you want to get in on this action, go to magicspoon.com slash cal to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code cal at checkout and you will save $5 off your order. They are so confident in their product that it is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee, which means if you don't like it, they will refund your money. They're also 100% sure that if this cereal doesn't make you happy, nothing will. So remember, you can get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cal and use that promo code cal to save $5. All right, with that in mind, let's get started with our show and we will start as we always do with work questions. Kevin asks, I have been time blocking now for a few months and using your time block planner. My mornings typically go well, but I am having trouble in the afternoon and almost always miss my shutdown complete ritual. Uh Uh-oh. Any advice on finishing strong with time blocking? Well, Kevin, I have three things to suggest here to help you stick with your schedule better, especially in the afternoon. One, change your schedules. One of the great things about time blocking is that when you are being very specific, this is what I want to do at this point. This is what I want to do at this point. Here's how I want to make the most out of my day. When you're being very specific, you get very specific feedback about what doesn't work. So if you find your energy just falls through the floor and you're failing with the fundamental block commitment, which as expert time blockers know, the whole idea with time blocking is that the main thing you're committing to is to follow your blocks no matter where they lead you. So you don't have to convince yourself with each task you do. You don't have to convince yourself, oh, I should do this task or this is what I should work on next or I should take a break or not take a break. One of the great advantages of time blocking is the only commitment you have to make is stick to the blocks. So if you're having a hard time with that commitment in the afternoon, what you're scheduling in the afternoon probably is not working. Maybe your energy is lower and you're putting deep things in the afternoon. Maybe your energy or willpower is lower and you have a very complicated block sequence in the afternoon. Like this has to get done in a half hour, then one hour for this and a half hour for this, where you have to hit everything just right. And it takes a lot of concentration and you just don't have it. That's important feedback. Based on that feedback, you might stack deeper work or intricate sequences earlier in the day. You might move more meetings later into the day. You might put a a shutdown a pseudo shutdown block where you're sort of cleaning your inbox and taking care of a lot of tasks, maybe at midday. And then you have a few things to work on at the end of the day that you can be a little bit more lax on or have your energy sort of peter off until you get towards that shutdown complete period. So I think that will help. Uh, I think it'll also help that nutrition, sleep, etc. Are you moving? Are you eating well? Are you eating stuff that gives you energy? You know, are you having, do you have breaks? Are you scheduling breaks? Like I'm going to take a half hour uh, to go for a walk after I eat lunch. Then I'm going to have a real big sprint and then I'm going to take a half hour break. And then it's a one hour shutdown. That type of stuff matters. Stuff that's going to keep your energy high. It's going to keep you refreshed. If you're just, you know, in a one bedroom apartment somewhere working from home and it's, I'm going to just power through from nine to five, you're probably going to lose steam around one or two. So make sure you're eating well. 
you're taking time for breaks, you're taking times to reset. Yet without that, you are going to have a hard time uh, sustaining that energy. And then three, you have to make the shutdown ritual sacrosanct. Until you cross that shutdown complete checkbox in your planner, your day is not done. You might need to have some sort of hard stop thing you do to sort of shut down uh, just dragging yourself through work. If you find yourself like, I'm just an email and the day just kind of drags on and the next thing I know it's late and, and I'm just going to bed without a shutdown complete, have a hard stop ritual. Like there's an alarm that goes off at whenever the final block ends, like 530, you know, you get up and you go for a run or something that's different. You come back 10 minutes, shutdown complete. Get the things off your mind. So you got to make that sacrosanct. You don't skip the shutdown. It takes 10 minutes. Even if you didn't get done what you wanted to get done, even if you had to stop in the middle of a block, even if you blew past some blocks, do the shutdown. Shutdown ritual is not limited to days where you hit everything just right. All right, so Kevin, I hope those three things help. Change what you put into your afternoon to be a little bit less demanding as the day goes on. Work with nutrition, work with breaks, et cetera, to keep your energy higher to prevent yourself from flagging and make that shutdown ritual a sacrosanct thing you do, no matter what happens with your schedule before then. Those three things should make a difference. Of course, I would be remiss. He mentioned the Time Block Planner. If you want to find out more about that planner, it turns out there's a website for that, timeblockplanner.com. You can watch a nice video of me explaining exactly how time blocking works. Next up, we have Han who asks, what is your general advice for a new assistant professor starting out at an R1 university? Well, Han, I would start by focusing all of my energy on the goal of how do I publish papers in good venues that get cited? And you figure out what I need to do that, what time I need, what strategies I need, and this could be something that you evolve, but this is your number one question. How do I do that? Once you have that answer in place, you give that plan whatever time it needs, and then you say, okay, I now have to squeeze everything else into the time that remains. I have to squeeze teaching. I have to squeeze service. I have to squeeze the administrative overhead of managing grants or just being an employee at a large organization into the time that remains and still do that well. But the constraints of how much time I have for that is set by what is required to publish good papers and good venues that get cited. Now, in order to not get overwhelmed or to be terrible at service or terrible at teaching, that's where you're going to want to deploy the type of sophisticated productivity techniques I talk about on this podcast. You want capture, configure, control productivity going on so that you don't have things in your brain. You're very organized. You make progress on things in advance. The website for the course gets up in advance. The prompt set gets written here, so you don't have to do it there. Uh, this service obligation, you get the applications reviewed uh, one hour a day over three weeks instead of having to stay up late, whatever, right? You want to be very, very organized so that this other component of your life as a professor gets done well and doesn't metastasize in terms of its schedule footprint. But the key thing here is that you prioritize the research. Make sure that has what it needs, and then you fight to make the other things fit into what remains. And if you're very organized and you're an assistant professor at an R1 university where you will likely be protected from having too much responsibilities beyond research, uh, it's it's a very much of a tractable thing. So, so be very productive about that stuff, but start with the research question. The issue that a lot of professors have in this circumstance is the research 
is not something that anyone is saying to them, this needs to be done by Friday. It's not something where their dean is asking them, uh, hey, Han, can you get this to me? It's not something where the students are there in the classroom and they need the lecture delivered, right? So instinctually, our, our, our instinct is let that fall down the list of priorities because no one is urgently asking for it. And then what happens is, especially if you're not very structured in terms of your organization techniques, the stuff that is being urgently asked, the service and the teacher-related task, that just fills up all your time. You say, well, I don't really have much time left to do research. And then the problem is, is like, sure, maybe you're a great teacher and you get that service stuff done. You're very reliable. And that goes on for about six years and then you don't get tenure and then you're done with that job. And that's not helping anyone either. If they hired you, they want you to get tenures. That's not helping them either. So that's why I say start with the research and say, I have to figure out what that needs and what my schedule is and how I do that. And then I figure out how to fit everything else into the time that remains. That is a much better pattern because uh, you have to basically short circuit our instinct to prioritize things based on the urgency and interpersonal obligation to get that work done. You can be an incredibly good teacher and on top of your reasonable service requirements in that smaller footprint if you're organized. This is not advocating being bad at those elements of professorial life. It's just saying Parkinson's principle will be at play here, that if you just let those fill the time available before you think about research, there won't be enough time left. Now, how do you do research really well? Well, that's really hard. Uh, I would say collaborators matter. Work with the best people. Work with senior people who already produce really good work so that you can learn from them about how they tackle things, how they tackle this type of work. Find important but hard questions as opposed to non-important but tractable questions. So there's a real tendency to say, let me work on something I know how to do, and it might not take much time, then maybe I can convince people it's important. That is appealing because you're like, I know how to do this work, but you need to find the, the, the questions that this would be important if I can make progress on it, but I don't really know how to make progress on it. And then really, really grind on that question of how do I make progress because those are the questions that are going to earn you tenure in the end. All right, so Han, I hope you find that helpful. Good luck with your research. And you know what? Have some gratitude for the, the reality that being a professor at Arwen University in the end is a really, really cool job. So, you know, congratulations on that. Our next question comes from Adi, who asks, once I've started gaining recognition, how do I keep up with the new responsibilities that generates without being distracted from my deep work? Well, Adi, I think this is a good question. My friend Ryan Holiday once said, and I think this is really savvy, that one of the cool ironies of being a writer is that the better you get at writing, the more people want to take your time away from actually doing writing. And so to make my own situation doubly cursed, the same is true of academia. Famously, the better you get as a researcher, the more people want to take your attention away from research. Reviews, sitting on panels, editing journals, sitting on committees, etc., right? So I'm kind of getting screwed from both of my professional objectives that as I get better in both, more and more people want to keep me away from those core things that help me gain recognition in the first place. So what is my strategy here? Well, I would say uh, I am hard to reach and lazy. And that is sort of my, my deep work protective shield. This is particularly true in the world of writing where I have a lot more autonomy. Obviously, I have obligations in the university that... Uh, need to be handled. But in the world of writing in particular, I'm hard to reach and I'm lazy. 
I'm not on social media, so you can't hit me up there. I don't see tweets. I don't see DMs. I don't know what a TikTok is, some sort of clock-related application. I'm not sure, but I'm not on there, so I can't be reached there. I don't have a single general-purpose email address. I have multiple email addresses, each for specific purposes, each with rules around it. I have a an interesting at calnewport.com address that says very clearly, hey, I like to hear about interesting things and articles, et cetera, but I'm not going to answer. I don't have time to answer. Don't expect an answer. Publicity stuff goes to publicists. Speaking stuff goes to speaking people. This is all by design. The emails that do get to me, I'm bad at responding. I can go days, especially if I'm really locked into a writing or, or research project. I can go days with basically not sending or replying to emails. Uh, and it does annoy people I know, and I do apologize for this, but it's also a key part of uh, how I protect deep work, even as an onslaught of potential opportunities and new responsibilities are coming my way through email. It's just hard for them to get to me. I'm not very responsive once they do get in. Second, I am lazy. I don't want to do new things. I want to solve proofs. I want to write articles. I want to write books. I'm only now 69 episodes in and over a million and a half downloads later, only now starting to come around to maybe podcasting is something that I want to do on a regular basis. I'm very, very cautious and slow to bring something into my world. Unlike a lot of people I know, I am not quick to build up a large infrastructure around the things I do. I edit my own podcast episodes. Why? because I don't want the overhead of having someone else involved. I have a format that is much less time-consuming than other formats because I'm very cautious. I, I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be overloaded. I just I want to write, I want to record, I want to solve. I'm very very slow to do anything else to bring in employees, to bring in infrastructure, to bring on new projects, to bring in new partnerships. I just have a default bias towards saying no. I am a lazy person within my professions, but because of that, because of these two things, I'm hard to reach and I'm very lazy. I don't like to take on new things. I don't like to grow things. I don't like to bring on new people and new obligations. I do not get fired up jumping on Zoom calls with my team to talk about what we're doing for the marketing efforts in Q3. I just want to do my thing and my Deep Work HQ, the same things as well as I can again and again and again. I found that works well if you just keep re returning to the same value-producing deep endeavors again and again and again and do your best to basically keep at bay everything else, even though in the short term you're missing opportunities, even though in the short term you're occasionally annoying people. Your ability grows, your products increase, the value that you bring into the world is amplified, and you end up not just happier, but also more successful and hopefully with a bigger uh, a bigger impact on the world. So that's my advice. I think this could apply to other people as well. Hard to reach, be lazy, stubbornly stick to the things that really matter. Make that your core. Be very slow to bring anything else in. Be very slow to bring another complication. Be be willing to let small bad things happen or to generate small annoyances with people. Just wish you could get back to them or just come to their event or just do their talk. It is worth it in the long run. All right, our next question comes from Mark. Mark asks, what are some strategies for handling large, ambiguous work tasks? I am able to focus on and churn through concrete problems, but given something ambiguous, say a software design task, I struggle. Prior to COVID, I would generally rely on social pressure to get through this type of problem, but social pressure just doesn't mean much to me in a remote environment. 
Well, Mark, I'm going to give you a little gentle, tough love here. But it sounds like to me that if you had been relying on social pressure to actually make progress on difficult, ambiguous tasks, a little bit suffering from amateur hour here. If you are a professional in a knowledge work sector, the very thing they are paying you to do is to take large, ambiguous tasks, figure out how to make progress, and then actually make progress and complete them even without a clear-cut structure even without someone saying, get this specific thing done by tomorrow, even without people surrounding you in your office, looking over your shoulder and saying, hey, Mark, you should be working. Knowledge work is fundamentally a very autonomous endeavor in a lot of these positions. You have to learn how to thrive under that autonomy. All right, so that is my tough love chastisement. Let's talk about how you do it. You gotta throw the professional productivity techniques at your work that I talk about a lot on this podcast. First of all, you should be weekly planning. During your weekly plan, you will be confronting the, what you call ambiguous large tasks that you need to make progress on and saying, what progress do I want to make this week? Then you look at the landscape of your week, which days are busy, which days are not, when do I have a lot of meetings, when are things open, and say, how do I want this progress to translate into this week? Do I want to work one hour every morning? Do I want to have one day where I do nothing but work on this project? Do I want to spend uh, the end of Tuesday and Thursday working on this? Whatever kind of makes sense. But for the big, important, ambiguous projects, figure out when am I making progress? Two, figure out what does progress mean this week? Given the time I have available to work on this project, this ambiguous task, what does progress mean? Is it getting a spec together? Is it mastering that algorithm I need, trying to figure out how to get this data structure it's time complexity down, whatever it is, you get more concrete. I'm working on this or that. These are the things I want to get done this week that'll help me make progress on this much larger ambiguous task. Then when you get to an individual day, your time block planning. You look at your weekly plan, you build a time block schedule for that day. Every hour has a job. You figure out in advance what you want to do with every minute of your day. And then when you go through your day, you're just executing what block you're currently in that plan you made during your weekly plan gets translated into concrete blocks when you're doing your daily time block plan. It's from two to four, from nine to 10.30 is when I'm working on exactly this. You have now gone from a amorphous thing, like add this feature to the software, to all right, today during this exact time, I am working on this exact piece. And then you get to that block and you do the work. Why? Because you're a professional. When you time block, you execute the blocks. You don't web surf. You don't get lost on email. You don't get lost on a YouTube rabbit hole. You figure out what you want to do with your time. You execute what you said. When you're done, you're done. You shut down your work and you move on and do other things in your life. That's what it looks like to be a real professional in the knowledge work sector. And Mark, I think you can get there. I think you're just getting started. Once you move past this sort of, let me just feel inspired before I do work. Let me just feel pressure before I do work. And you get to something where you're in control of your time you're figuring out what's the best thing to do with it, you're going to jump ahead in your career and you're going to feel a lot better about your work days too because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to sort of wander reactively through your day waiting for pressure to make you do things and allowing distraction to pull you away from things. When you actually take control, work actually feels a lot more fulfilling. And when you shut down after work time, it feels all the more relaxed and recharging. So Mark, you've got a lot of really good improvements in your career ahead of you. I think it's time to go pro. These type of sophisticated, more professional level productivity techniques is the foundation on which that transition is going to happen.
All right, let's do one more work question here. There's an interesting query from Franklin who asks, I'm having a tough time staying productive after around the middle of the week because I'm working from home. I live in a one bedroom apartment with my wife and large dog. Now, Franklin, are you saying that your wife is a large dog or that you, you are sharing this one bedroom apartment with your wife and in addition with a large dog? Both would be interesting. I think the first one might present some bigger problems that are outside of my scope. So let's just assume it's the second one. All right. I cannot stay on task with multiple tab distraction and feeling a bit stuffy with so many months working from home. Any suggestions on how to get better at this? All right. Franklin clarifies that he lives in New York City and they are also, and this is real helpful, doing construction outside of his window. All right, Franklin. Uh, first of all, I empathize. You know, if I was married to a large dog and living in a small apartment with construction going on outside of my window in New York City, working from home, I too would be exhausted. And I want you to accept that that's okay. It's a dumpster fire year. We're not trying to be optimal. So one of the things you can do right off the bat is say, look, if I don't really have the energy to get through a whole week because of these difficult circumstances and my bad life choices and marrying an animal instead of a human, I got, I got to let this dog thing go, don't I? But you know what I mean? If it's because of the dumpster fire situation, if I can't knock out nine hours a day full energy, then you know what? Cut back on what you do front load the front of the week. Do what I call stealth part-time working during the end of the week where you're not working full hours because you recognize I can't do this. I mean, people are doing stealth part-time work all the time right now for a lot of different reasons. Like if you have your kids at home because your schools refuse to open, you probably are doing stealth part-time work because those kids have to be watched. If you have stress because of a relative who's sick or, you know, uh, in danger of being sick or you're sick yourself, like you can't get the same amount of work done, right? There's a lot of reasons right now why people can't get the same amount of work done. And a lot of people aren't talking about it. They're just sort of stealthily doing less work. And I think that's okay because again, it's a dumpster fire of a year and you are allowed a little bit of leeway in such years. So get your productivity game completely locked in, capture, configure, control, weekly planning, time block planning, do the type of stuff that's in my new book. So not to be too self-promotional here, but in a world without email, I really go through how individuals, right? So, I mean, I talk about executives, entrepreneurs, and employees. So for someone like you, who's an employee, I really get into how to go through all of these processes that make up what you do that are implicit. Like you've never really specified them, but you know, I guess I produce this type of thing and I do this type of thing. I do that type of thing. You, you go through and you make them explicit and you optimize them to try to minimize back and forth emailing and wasted overhead. And suddenly, you know, you can gain back a lot of time. So you're, you're organized on a weekly, on a weekly matter. You're time blocking your day. So you're very intense when you work, you're optimizing your processes. Like I talk about in a world without email right? You're doing all these things. You're going to free up a lot of time and you can reclaim that time and say, you know, honestly, Thursday and Friday, I kind of don't do anything after one. I think that's okay right now, right? It's not the path to become CEO long-term, but it could be the path to get through this current situation. Two, you got to get out of the apartment. You got to get out of the apartment, right? 
uh, as you have to make it a thing to get out of that apartment as much as possible, both while working and while not working. So if you follow my advice and you get very productive and you free up Thursday and Friday afternoons without telling anyone, go do things during Thursday and Friday afternoons. Get out of the apartment, go to Central Park, uh, rent a car and get across the bridge, get out, go up county, you know, like whatever you need to do, go do something interesting, go to the, the, uh, I don't know the beaches, the Rockaways, like wherever there's, you know, the beaches you can get to. Um, but get out of the apartment and do things. Do things. I know it's cold in New York, but, you know, get a jacket and uh, find places you can eat outside and drink outside and meet friends outside and have some drinks in a safe way. Like you, you, you got to be over the top about getting out of the apartment. Go to Central Park. Walk more. You can walk all over the place in New York, walk all over the place, have long walks you do, have interesting places you go to. I mean, I don't care what it is. You got to get out of that apartment. Now, if you have any financial resources here, if you are lucky enough to have a good job, and you probably do if you can afford to live in New York City, um, and I, I, don't, I don't know how much money the, the large dog you married makes, so you're probably doing pretty well yourself. If you have flexibility where you can cut down on your expenses one in one place, like I don't go out, I'm not you know eating out as much, I'm not going on vacation. If you can take that money right now and temporarily invest it to have another option, like let's go rent a house, man. We're all remote anyways. Let's go rent a house in, in the Catskills. Do it for a month. Do it for the winter. Like just someplace different where we have some space and some breathing room and it's different. Everything is on the table because we're in a dumpster fire of a year. You know, I spent the month last May, uh, we were on 60 acres with a kind of a weird property. There was like a, a grass airstrip and a river that overlooked a bay. Like it was, but it was cool and it was different. It's actually where the first episodes of this podcast was recorded. It's kind of a crazy thing to do, but crazy things are on the table. So if you can afford it, find a pretty cheap rental because it's off season and no one wants to be there and go spend two months out there. Like you and your wife go out there as long as it has reasonable internet, who knows the difference? Like take advantage of the fact Take advantage of the fact that everything is remote. Like what I'm trying to do here is twofold, right? So if I'm going to summarize my response here to you uh, right now, Franklin, it's twofold. One is trying to get yourself to give yourself a break. Say, so yeah, I maybe I should just work less and maybe I should, I should let my week peter out. And if I'm really productive, I can actually gain back a lot of time without anybody noticing. And that's fine. I'm not trying to become CEO this year. I'm trying not to become psychotic, right? I don't want to be CEO. I just don't want, you know, COVID psycho you know, psychosis, right? We're, we're being more modest this year. Next year, we're going to get after it. Next year on my podcast, we'll be, uh, we'll, we'll really be getting after it. This year, we're trying to survive. And then two, just to generalize what I'm saying here, do grand gestures, invest the money you have to like go do something different, to be somewhere different, to get out of the city temporarily, to go to a cabin that's not quite heated enough in the Catskills, but it's kind of cool because there's a pond on it and you can be like Thoreau and write things about the pond ice. Now is the time to do that type of thing. Have a habit. Oh, I'm going to walk five miles a day throughout New York City. I'm going to walk. I live on the Upper West Side. I'm going to walk cross town to the East River every day, like have some over the top type things you do. Um, scenic places in the city you go to, outdoor restaurants that you make a point of going to, to 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 meet people. Like now is the time to actually really put a lot of energy into doing interesting things that get you out of your apartment. Do not just get locked in there in the way that you might do in a normal period where you're just kind of busy, you kind of work and you're at home and you don't really have much free time. Don't get into a habit where you're just in your apartment all the time. You're like, ah, this is just easier. And that energy starts to fade and your fight starts to fade. And the world becomes a little bit gray. Um, 
don't settle for that. Get out of the apartment, do weird things, do radical things. Uh, and if that all fails, move to Florida. <laughs> I think that's what I, mean. I was just talking to James uh, uh, Altschuler, who, who wrote the uh, New York City is Dead, that viral, that viral article. Um, he moved down to Florida. They seem pretty relaxed down there. They seem pretty relaxed down there. He says, as long as you don't mind uh, potentially getting eaten by an alligator, <laughs> you can be fine. But it's warm down there and, uh, you know, I don't know. People are pretty relaxed, though. So if all this else fails, uh, become James's neighbor down in Florida. You'll have a lot more. You'll have a lot more room, a lot more breathing room down there. Just watch out. Watch out for the alligators. Um, they like they like to eat large dogs. All right, all right. Enough of that. Let's move on now to some technology questions. All right. Let's start with a question from Barack. And no, not the Barack that you're thinking of. It's spelled differently. This Barack asks, could you talk more about ASMR and deep work? Well, ASMR, all right, this is one of these topics I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in. Quick background. Let's get our terminology straight. ASMR stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. And what ASMR is referring to is this particular reaction that some people get to certain types of uh, sounds or touch that that creates a like a tingling feeling down the, like the back of your head, like in your head and kind of down the back of your neck. Some people never feel this. Some people, they do have this. I get, uh, I get ASMR reactions. I'm pretty susceptible to them. I can get them like when I'm getting haircut. So sometimes like particular manipulations of the scalp, uh, can create them. And I definitely have that also sounds can trigger them. All right. So how do we draw a connection from this to deep work? Well, so here's what happened. People started making YouTube videos, these ASMR YouTube videos, which was all about triggering that tingling down the back of your neck feeling. Lots of them are weird, right? Because the, the sounds or whatever, it's like whispering and, and scraping sounds that can create this effect. So there's these, these very weird, uh, weird videos that have a ton of views in which, uh, you know, it'll be people like whispering and then they'll have a mortar and pestle with like dried paint. They have really big mic, like right there, like really and just scraping, scraping that, like kind of grinding that up a little bit and then whispering, trying to create this sensation. So people are like, oh, I want the ASMR and uh, you can watch these videos. Okay. That gave way to a different phenomenon called ASMR rooms. And so now what people were doing was creating YouTube videos typically of a, a sort of scenic location and they would do the three, 3d audio, right? Stereo audio in a good 3d way. And there would be sounds that were, that these are reminiscent of the sounds that might create an ASMR response, but now they're starting to drift farther away. Uh, so like a fireplace crackling, you might hear the crackling in both ears, like really good 3d audio. Now, what's interesting about ASMR rooms is that their purpose, the purpose of these videos has gotten away from creating this physical reaction and are more about just putting people into a state of undistracted presence or concentration. Now we're getting closer to deep work territory and things are getting interesting. So some of these, like a, a popular theme for ASMR rooms, for example, is Harry Potter locations. You can have like the Gryffindor common room and it's just a rendering of the, the Gryffindor common room and there's a fire crackling in the fireplace and you hear it in your, your earphones kind of all around you or like where the fire is located in the room and, 
And, you know, there might be like an owl on a perch that kind of moves occasionally, um, or you're in the library at Hogwarts or, or what have you, and there's uh, lanterns that kind of sway a little bit. Occasionally breezes come by. It, it, it's supposed to be this immersive experience of you are in a place that's very conducive for reflection and thought. And that uh, people put these ASMR room videos full screen on their computer. They put on very nice headphones and it helps them sort of calm down and get lost. And a lot of people find that it's helpful for them to start thinking and being more creative. Well, I've written about ASMR rooms multiple occasions on my blog and newsletter at calnewport.com because I think there's something really interesting here. I'm really interested in this idea of using technologically constructed environments to help induce states of concentration, low distraction, low anxiety, in which both creativity and high-powered thinking is enhanced. Given how much of our economy now depends on basically high-level elite creative cognitive thinking, anything that could enhance that might be really good for the bottom line. Also, if you're in one of these mediated environments, you are now, you've, you've ritualistically broken yourself off from the normal sources of distraction like email or Slack that might otherwise draw your attention away. To me, the final step here that makes this interesting is virtual reality. ASMR rooms are moving over into virtual reality. I think this is going to be, it could be potentially a killer productivity application of virtual reality. Just be able to put on one of these helmets that has a good wide field of view and you're in the Gryffindor common room or the, uh, I've seen one for like the dining, the dining hall at uh, uh, Christ College at Oxford or one that was like Charles Dickens' Victorian study, Right. You're in this thing. It's visually all around you. The 3D audio puts the sounds all around you. I am really convinced that A, because this cuts you off from standard distraction, but B, because it actually puts you into a place that's so like awe-inspiring or over the top and the audio is in this certain asmr type way that it really does put your brain into a different state that might be more conducive for then figuring out the business strategy for writing the really good chapter for solving the proof. The only thing missing from this is what's the right way to actually capture work product if you're in one of these virtual environments, because obviously you don't have, you can't see your hands, you don't have paper in front of you. And that's the missing link. Last time I wrote about this, a lot of people came back and said, um, voice recognition. So now you're in the Gryffindor common room. You take five minutes. It's all around you. The sounds are there. You're away from email. You're away from Slack. Your mind is kind of inspired. If you're a Harry Potter fan, I guess. Um, and now it's okay. Let's get these thoughts down. Voice recognition could do it. I mean, imagine you start talking and there in the environment is, I don't know. I mean, look, I'm not a super Harry Potter expert, but you know, uh, there's, there's like a book and there's like a quill and like what you're saying is writing down there. And in this environment, you're able to capture information, right? Or if you're solving a proof, like you, you use your just your Oculus controller and there's like a floating, you know, blackboard, you can write on it and you're doing math equations. You can kind of save that and move to the next one, right? I think that's what we need to get. There might be a resolution issue. You need enough resolution that you can write sufficiently small and it's still legible, but I think we're almost there. Anyways, I think these type of immersive single tasking experiences could be a really cool way to, to break out more productivity, but also make work more enjoyable. Like, okay, 
is a such a clear delineation. When I am in the dining hall at Christ Church is I'm working on math proofs. And when I'm not and I'm at my laptop, I'm doing email. And it's really clear and really separate and really fun. So I'm big on that. I've talked to a few people about it. Hey, if you're a developer that works in VR and you want to work on something like this, I will be your guinea pig. I will buy whatever rig or set you think I need to test it because I I uh, I just think this idea is cool. And also I want to go to the Gryffindor common room. All right. So thanks, Brock. It's a good question. Uh, an excuse for me to, to geek out on my dreams of having these type of VR mediated experiences. All right. Let's do a short one here. Chris asks, can long form reading include listening to audiobooks? Yeah, I think that's fine. Uh, whether you're consuming the books through an audiobook, reading on a Kindle, reading in a real book, it's all roughly in the same family in terms of the encounter with complex structured ideas. So yeah, audiobooks are great. All right. Rich asks, do you use an app to share family and household tasks with your wife? Well, Rich, more generally, uh, in my experience, shared calendars are much more important and more consistently useful for family than shared task lists. Shared calendars are incredibly valuable because you need to see what's on everybody's plate. It's very, very useful to see uh, like what my wife has on her schedule for tomorrow. It's very useful for her to see what I have on my schedule. It's very useful for us to be able to put things we're doing together on a calendar. We both see it. We all use Google Calendar, which makes it very easy. So in like one view, I have my my work calendar, which my wife sees. I have, I call it like my logistical calendar. These are more like scheduling notes for myself, right? It's not appointments with other people, but it's, you know, I'm recording my podcast here or I'll use it as an all-day event as a reminder that this thing is due soon. I've made that into its own calendar because I don't need my wife to see all those. That would just clutter her view. And so I don't share that one with her. Uh, then she has a calendar that I see. There's a family calendar. Uh, Georgetown has a departmental calendar. So things like faculty meetings or this or that, they all show up on the same calendar for me. It's great. So shared calendars are magic from a technologically enhanced productivity perspective. Shared task lists, you know, uh, they're fine, but not so fundamental. Uh, typically, the reality is most people already have their own individual systems for maintaining tasks. So having an additional shared system, though not a bad thing, is often not necessary. Uh, I think just having some sort of weekly meeting, what's going on this week, what are you getting done, the stuff that's time sensitive goes onto the shared calendar, the stuff that is not tied to a particular time just goes onto the individuals in the family's task list and then they execute off their own list. Again, there's nothing wrong with shared lists. I just, in, in my experience, I've found to have a an additional list in addition to your system you already have can, if you already have a good system, is is somewhat somewhat superfluous. Well, I'll tell you what is not superfluous, and that is Four Sigmatic's delicious mushroom coffee with lion's mane mushroom. You know I'm a fan of Four Sigmatic. This coffee has a smooth, nutty flavor a little bit lower caffeine than normal coffee, so it doesn't get you too jittery. And that mushroom that's been added to it does something unique to your brain so that it becomes a very good deep work hook. If you drink this coffee every time before you do deep work, your brain soon realizes, soon learns, ah, that feeling and that four sigmatic mushroom coffee feeling means it is time to concentrate. Well, what I'm excited to tell you about today is that they are having an incredible winter sale. So in addition to their 
100% money back guarantee that they've always had. They are now allowing you to try their products for up to 50% off, right? So on top of that 50% off, I've worked out a deal to get you as a deep question listener an extra 10% off of that sales price. But that's just for deep questions listeners. If you want to claim that deal, where you need to go is foursigmatic.com slash deep. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash deep. This sale ends on the 23rd, so you need to hurry now to stock up on that smooth tasting, deep work initiating mushroom coffee up to 50% off sales price with an additional 10% off for my listeners if you go to foursigmatic.com slash deep. I also want to talk about my friend Adam Gilbert's online fitness company, My Body Tutor. January is maybe traditionally where you have your New Year's resolutions happen, but there was a lot going on this January. A lot going on this January. So maybe you got a little bit delayed in kicking off your restart and it's going to become a February resolution. So the time is right to finally get in shape and My Body Tutor is the way to do it. Adam's company, his model is brilliant. You have a coach, 100% online, but a coach that is dedicated to you. Here's your meal plan. Here's your workout plan. And then, and this is the secret sauce, they hold you accountable. You got to talk to this coach online on a regular basis and say, this is what I did and this is what I did not do. Knowing that there's someone that you trust and respect that you are going to have to talk to about your fitness goals gets the job done. That's why Adam's company has really been killing it for years before the pandemic came along. But obviously right now it is the perfect, it is the perfect company to have if you are looking in a socially distanced pandemic to get in shape. So go to mybodytutor.com. That's M-Y-B-O-D-Y-T-U-T-O-R, mybodytutor.com to learn more about this online fitness coaching product. Tell them that you came because of Cal. Tell them you came because of Deep Questions and they will give you $50 off. Say hi to Adam for me if you do sign up. I miss the old days when he used to be the health columnist for my Study Hacks blog. So pass along my greetings as you sign up and kickstart your journey into incredible health. All right, let's do a question here from Jane who asks, how do I use tools such as YouTube in a productive way without being sucked into entertainment black holes? That certainly is an occupational hazard of making use of YouTube on a regular basis. Those auto-recommendation algorithms have a way of just taking you from one video to another video to another video, uh, and then you look up, and you are a QAnon chieftain, right? So you have to be very careful with YouTube to not lose a lot of time to distraction. My general advice on YouTube is that you should treat it like a library and not a channel. So what I mean by that is if there is a particular thing you want to learn about or see, YouTube is a fantastic technology platform. If you need to know how to change the oil in your Honda Odyssey minivan, YouTube can deliver you a video that shows you exactly how to do it. It's like a fantastic library. 
if there's a particular author that you are interested in, a speech they did or a talk they did, or let's say questions they're answering, like I'm doing right now on topics that are interesting to you, YouTube is a great platform to go look up that author, see the event you care about, see the podcast episode they recorded that you're interested in the guests, see the questions they're answering. It's a fantastic library. If you instead use YouTube like a channel, hey, I'm bored, let me turn this on and entertain me, you're going to lose hours. You're going to lose hours that could probably be put to use on things that are going to make your life much more richer. So just have that mindset, Jane. Have that mindset of I go to YouTube to look up a particular thing that I know about, want to learn about, or know exists on there. Just like getting a book out of the library, I will watch it, then I'm done. It is not a source of entertainment. So what that means is don't click the recommendations. Don't click the recommendations. That's channel behavior. Oh, let me just see what comes up next. Let me see what comes up next. No, it is not a good source of distraction. If you're bored and you want to be entertained, find a high quality way to gain entertainment. Read a good book, go for a walk, exercise, build something, be with friends, push yourself in an interesting way. Do not let YouTube be the entertainment. Now, if you struggle, if you really struggle because you know you, you see that video and it's being auto-recommended and it just looks really interesting because that panda is going down the snow slope like a sled and God, you got to watch that. Get a plugin such as Distraction Free Tube. You can find these plugins readily available that just whoosh, get rid of the autoplay, get rid of the recommendations. All you can do is search for the thing you're looking for. You can watch it when you're done, you're done. So Jane, if you have an issue right now with falling down entertainment black holes with YouTube, use the plugin, only access it on your computer, only access it like a library to look up particular things. After a while, you will lose your taste of YouTube as a source of entertainment, and then you might not have to worry so much about accidentally seeing a recommendation or getting sucked in the black holes. It takes a little bit of training, but you'll get there. Library, not channel, library, not channel. That gets you a ton of value out of YouTube while losing, while losing most of those negative side effects. All right, let's do some questions now about the deep life. Caitlin asks, how does one begin to find joy in deep leisure? I am a PhD candidate and my deep hobby candidates are playing guitar, learning languages, and writing fiction. All are sufficiently unrelated and unuseful to my work that they shouldn't feel like work and I enjoy all of them in small doses, but only when I've had an easy day. I want to make them a regular part of my life, but I worry they'll just make me feel like I'm working all of the time and I'll burn out. Well, first of all, Caitlin, I'm glad you're asking about deep leisure. I think this is a really important topic and one that maybe will become more relevant as we, we begin with perhaps too much optimism, beginning to think ahead to life after the pandemic being a major part of our day-to-day -day existence, when our anxiety is going to be lower, when our schedules are going to be less disrupted, when the dumpster fire is going to be largely put out, a lot of people are thinking about creating this life that is richer, something that is more meaningful, something they enjoy more because we all have this mindset of, I don't necessarily want to just go back to exactly how things were before. And so deep leisure plays a big role into this. It's a topic I want to come back to. So I can assure you, you're not going to burn out. You're not going to burn out by having let's say, demanding non-work-related activities 
with the caveat of if you put these things into your life properly. A few things to recommend to you here. One, you need a clear separation between your work life and non-work life. You need to be doing weekly planning. You need to be time blocking every day. You need to have a clear final block with a shutdown complete ritual that occurs. If you use my time block planner, check off that shutdown complete block every night. Because you're a PhD candidate, I want you to be thinking that your average number of working hours should be less than nine to five. Now, the way this should actually play out is that maybe some days you do full work days, but other days you do like a half day. And maybe once a month or so, you take a whole day off, you know, and you go on a hike and you go to a movie. Uh, I used to do this. I would go maybe once a semester. I had a whole ritual. I'd get a coffee. I'd go for a walk. I would go to a used bookstore in downtown Silver Spring and buy a stupid novel, go have lunch, go see a movie, all within the working hours when like my kids were at school and my wife was working. You have flexibility in academia, take advantage of it. So don't overwork yourself. If you're really efficient as a PhD candidate, you can work on average less than nine to five. So you have plenty of plenty of freedom from work. So the work itself should not be burning you out. Two, when you're thinking about activities outside of work, there's a few different categories here. Like the deep leisure, what you call deep leisure, these sort of aggressively, I'm going to build up a skill, I'm going to learn how to play guitar, I'm going to learn how to speak a language. That's just one category of things you can do with your time outside of work. That's like the, the cultivation category. Like I'm, I'm trying to uh, like cultivate new skills. And that requires a lot of concentration. But there's other categories that are important. There's a, a connoisseurship category, which is I want to enjoy things that I appreciate. You know, a, a nice bottle of wine, a beautiful sunset. If you're a cinephile watching a movie, just things that you, you it's pure, not pure pleasure, but, but gracious uh, appreciation. That's another type of activity much less intense because now you're just enjoying something that you know enough about. Uh, sports fall into this. You know, you follow baseball just to sit down and listen to a game on the radio and see how it unfolds. That's sort of connoisseurship. You have uh, sort of community activities. I want to be with friends. I want to be with family. I want to be with people in my academic community, sacrificing non-trivial time and intention on behalf of them. I'm taking time out of my day to go spend time with you or to go do something useful for you. That's incredibly enriching. Makes you feel connected. Makes you feel part of uh, some sort of community. And then there's just self-care, general productivity outside of work. I need to get my car oil changed. I need to exercise, these type of things. You got to balance all of these activities. So you have the cultivation activities, like trying to play that guitar, but that same day, maybe you do a little bit of connoisseurship. And this day is just about community. I'm going to be with my my uh, a family member all evening or all Saturday. And then, then there's like, you're, you're mixing in, I need to get my oil changed in the car and I have my exercise. You need to balance all these different types of leisure activities. That rich, diverse portfolio is definitely going to be protection against burnout. If you're trying to just hammer the cultivation like a second job, then maybe you are going to be in some issue of burning out because it's going to feel like a job. But if it's one of three or four types of activities that you balance well in your life, it will be a rich contribution. The final thing I want to recommend here is ease into it. Don't do guitar, language learning, and writing all at the same time, do one. And the thing that you ease into, you want to kind of make it a part of your life. Maybe you use the leisure plan idea from Digital Minimalism, my book, Digital Minimalism, where you have a bit of a rough schedule about here's when I work on this and how I work on it with a intermediate goal that you're aiming towards actually accomplishing. 
I want to learn how to play this song. I want to learn to get to this level of conversationalist. Uh, I want to get this short story completed, whatever it is, right? A bit of a schedule of how you're making progress for it. But make the goal completely autonomous and optional. No one's waiting for it. There's no pressure on it. So that you just get in the rhythm of working on some of these cultivation, deep leisure activities on a regular basis and you eventually accomplish a goal and you come up with another one and it becomes a part of your, your image. Oh, I enjoy, I'm someone who makes progress on my writing or my guitar playing. And that's something that's a part of me. And you'll, you'll build up more of an interest and a motivation for it as you get better at it, as you see more progress. Bonus tip to add on to that final one, create if possible, ritual or environment around these cultivation, deep leisure activities that in itself is motivating and attractive. Go somewhere really scenic to do your writing. Have a, a glass of French wine as you finish your language learning. Put music on, change the atmosphere. Go out of your way to actually build around this thing you're doing a pretty enjoyable a pretty enjoyable environment and ritual. You know, take the shed in your backyard and turn it into a writing studio completely over the top, but you do it because you know why? It's going to make this whole ritual of going out there and working on my short stories. It's going to make that all the more interesting and meaningful and something I'm looking forward to do. You know, have a typewriter for some reason, instead of using a word processor, invest in Scrivener instead of using word, do the Hemingway thing and have a, a little bit of, you know, whiskey on the rocks for as you finish and you can stare out, you know, through the window of your garden shed to the fence of your next door neighbor or whatever. But you know what I mean? Be over the top with ritual, be over the top with environment because why not? This is, it really indicates this is something that's fun and interesting and meaningful and not just like a, a task like you would do at work in front of your computer screen with your email open. All right. So I love thinking about leisure. Let's talk some more about it. Hopefully these two, these things are useful to you. So I, I gave you a distinction between different types of leisure. You need to balance them all. I said, don't go, uh, I said to have clear shutdown between work and non-work and don't work too much. You're a PhD candidate, you can get away with that. And then I said, uh, don't do too much in this cultivation category and build up over the top rituals and environments around it. Do all of this. And I think you will find a lot more enjoyment in your non-work life. Next up is Alun, who says the Eisenhower box is something that Stephen Covey used in his book, First Things First. Do you think it is a useful tool for deciding what to put into a time block? Do you think it should apply to all parts of your life? Well, Alun, I'm glad you bring up the Eisenhower box because I do think it is useful. Let's talk about it briefly here. So if you're not familiar with this box. It's a two by two box, two rows, two columns. You have a column for urgent and a column for not urgent. You have a row for important and you have a row for not important. So this gives you four combinations of urgent, not urgent, important, not important. Eisenhower and Covey talks about this in his book, but Eisenhower famously talked about most of the stuff on your plate falls into one of these boxes. Stephen Covey called them quads and labeled them quad one, quad two, quad three, and quad four. Same idea. And he said, once you understand which box a potential activity or obligation falls into, you have a better understanding of what to do with it. So for example, if something falls into the urgent but not important box, Eisenhower's instinct was to delegate it. All right. 
uh, this has to get done, but it's not something that's crucial or that uses my skills. So like, let's figure out a way to automate this or have someone else do it. If it falls into the not urgent and not important box, just get rid of it. I don't want to spend much time on things that are not urgent or not important. Just find a way to get those things out of your life. On the other hand, if something is urgent and important, well, we all do those. That's the thing that we most easily do because like, man, this thing is really important. It's due right away. Let's go. And then you get to this final crucial box. It's what Stephen Covey called quad two, which is the combination of important, but not urgent. He said, this is where you got to put attention and make sure that the things that are important and not urgent, that you really think about them and that there's things in that box that you are scheduling and getting done, even though no one is forcing you to do it. Consistently prioritizing quad twos, to use the terminology of Stephen Covey, is often the key to a successful and sustainable life. So, Loon, I think this general Eisenhower Bach framework is useful way more than just professional endeavors, but for your life in general. Now, the place where this is relevant when we're thinking about professional endeavors is not when you're building your time block plan, but when you're building your weekly plan. And you're trying to figure out what do I want to work on this week? What do I generally want to make progress on? This is the place where you're going to bring in quad twos. You're going to bring in, hey, here's non-urgent important things that I want to make progress on. How do you know about these things? Well, when you look at your strategic slash quarterly plans, whatever you call them, when you look at those in preparation for your weekly plan, that's where you have notes on this type of thing. That's where you've clarified what's important to you. That's where you've identified quad two style projects you want to make progress on. You see that when you do your weekly plan. And that's when you remind yourself, okay, Friday morning, let's block it off. We're working on this quad two important, but not urgent project or however project, however it ends up being scheduled into your week, right? So your weekly plan is where those quad twos get put in. But just in general, when you're trying to make sense of all the stuff on your plate, so when you're doing what we would call the configure step of capture, configure, control, that's where that not important row really gets handled, where you really say, this thing here, you know, I'm processing my to-do list, I'm getting stuff out of my inbox, I'm doing configure stuff. This is not important. This is not urgent. I'm just going to get rid of it. I'm going to get out of this responsibility. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to tell the people, I'm sorry, I don't have time. I'm going to ignore it, whatever. This is also during that configure step where you might say, this is urgent, but it's not really best for me to do. It's not important to me. Let me automate this. Let me give it to someone else. Let me hire someone to do this. Let me delegate it. All right. So those are the places where I think you integrate the Eisenhower block into planning your days is weekly plans is where you make sure that the non-urgent important get coverage. And whenever you're doing configuring is where you're going and deleting and delegating these different things that fall into that not important row. Now, stepping back a step, I think this is a good way to think about all aspects of your life, a good way to think about all buckets of the deep life. I keep coming back to this point, putting energy into the important, minimizing energy on the not important is the key of getting the best return on the limited time, energy, and attention you have available. This gives some terminology to how to do that. You should have a core quad two endeavor going on in each of the big buckets in your life. You should also be very aggressively trying to get rid of those quad four, not important, urgent things to try to delegate or automate those as much as possible. You should be trying to just take out of your life as many not important, not urgent things as possible as well. So you have more time to, of course, do the urgent important, but also to make steady progress on the non-urgent important a lot of different combinations, but it's a useful way to think about it. But I think we see the big picture picture here. 
not all tasks are made equal. Not all tasks need to be done by you. Not all tasks need to be done. Not all tasks are going to get done without special attention to make sure that they do. The Eisenhower block can help you make sense of all those different categories. All right, let's do one more question here. Vanish asks, how do you come out of the social media bubble into which I entered this lockdown and now cannot come out? Uh, that's a good question. Good question. I mean, typically I almost always push back first in these questions and say, don't use the term lockdown there. Say pandemic. During this pandemic, depending on where you've lived, there have been different times in which there have been lockdowns in place where, where uh, you were basically needed to stay at home, but most of the time in most of the places you have not been in a lockdown. And the reason why I make that distinction is that it's easy to fall into a lockdown mindset. The, the fall into a mindset in of until things are back to complete normal, things are completely locked down and not normal. And I think when you're in that mindset, you avoid a lot you could be doing that would be good for your soul and be good for your mental health and be good for your mind and be good for your life in general. So that's just a nitpick, but I push down. Don't say we've been in a quarantine or a lockdown since last March. We have been suffering a pandemic since last March, which has generated many disruptions, including occasional periods of lockdown. So semantic, but I think important for your mindset. All right. So what about the social media bubble? A lot of people, Venetia, have had this exact same problem where uh, essentially the, the anxiety of the pandemic, the all the different news that's being generated, and the curtailment of the normal things you would do to distract yourself or spend your time, push you into an engagement with social media that becomes all encompassing. And now you're using these things way more than you should be. Uh, what I'm going to recommend is that it's probably time for a digital declutter, right? You do not need to be monitoring news on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, you could just get the barest bones news right now. You would be okay. What's going on around me where I live right now? When do I get to sign up for a vaccine? Can I go in the restaurants or not? Like, there's not that much that's changing, right? Okay, great. I know what I need to know. Let me get away from the news for a while. Let me get away from doom scrolling for a while. Let me get away from TikTok for a while. So I'm going to suggest that you do a declutter in the way I talked about in my book, Digital Minimalism. 30 days, maybe start mid-February and go to mid-March. When you're done with it, it'll be the spring, depending on where you live. It'll be beautiful. So that's a, a bonus, a bonus to this timing. Take a break from optional personal digital technologies during these 30 days. You're taking a break from social media. You're taking a break from online news. You're taking a break from streaming videos. You're taking a break from video games, if that is a vice that you have. News consumption should be minimal. Get the information you need. Uh, but otherwise, you're free from that noise for 30 days. During this period, you will experience a bit of a detox type sensation where that urge to constantly check your phone will subside, but that is not the, the point of these 30 days. It's not a detox. It is instead a period for you to do what I think you need to do right now, which is get back in touch through reflection and experimentation what you care about. What do you value? What do you want to spend your time doing? What is your vision of the deep life? It might be useful here to actually go through my standard deep life exercises, get keystone habits in place, do overhauls one bucket at a time, however you want to do this. When the 30 days are over, it is time to start from scratch with your digital life. You got knocked off course by the pandemic. Let's get back on the road. And the way you get back on the road after those 30 days is you say, 
now that I know what I want to do with my time, what I value, my image of a good life, what's the best way to deploy technologies to support and amplify these things I care about? The answer to those questions will specify what technologies you bring back into your life. Everything else, it's out. If there is not a thing in your life that you really value and think that TikTok is the very best way to support this thing you value, there is no TikTok in your life. If there is not a thing in your life that you really value and having Twitter on your phone is the best way to support this value, Twitter's gone. Now, here's the thing. Not only does this make you more selective about what technologies you use, but because you know why you are using each technology that remains in your life, it's to support this thing, you can start to optimize. If I know that I am an artist and I'm using Instagram because I need visual inspiration to help motivate my own creative work, if you know that's the reason you use Instagram, then you take it off your phone and you put it on your computer. And you, you, you unfollow all of those influencers because that has nothing to do with this value. You only follow 12 artists whose work you really admire. And like Friday night with a, a good glass of wine, you sign on on your desktop, you type the password in manually, you get it on a post-it note that's in the other room, you spend 30 minutes, you look at what they've posted that week. It takes 30 minutes. You get the inspiration. You're done with Instagram for the week. When you know why you're using a technology, you can optimize how you use the technology and the cost to benefit ratio goes substantially into your favor. This stuff works, Vanish. When I was working on digital minimalism, I had 1,600 people go through this exercise. They sent me reports. I know a lot about it. It works. You have to do it again and again. That's just life. A pandemic happens. Guess what? You're going to have to redo your declutter. A pandemic ends. And a lot of things change about your life and working life. Guess what? You might have to do this again. You might have to reconfigure. That's fine. But you're remaining intentional. So you can and you should do this, Vanish. Take a month away from this stuff. Right. I mean, unless you're literally working on like a polyclonal antibody treatment right now, in which case, like, hey, do what you need to do. You are not needed on the front line. You don't need to know minute to minute what's going on. You don't need to be like a breaking news producer. You don't need to be commenting on people's Twitter posts. You will be OK. The world will go on for 30 minutes, get a little bit of news just so you know, like literally what's happening. Your town's not about to be hit by an avalanche or what have you. So, you know, literally the urgent stuff you need to know, this is just for 30 days. You'll be okay. We're not going to miss you. Reflection, experimentation, get out of your house, get outside, do inspiring things, talk to people, see people, feed your soul, figure out what you care about, rebuild your technological life. You'll be out of the bubble. And if events push you back in, do it again. And if events change your technology such a way that you fall into a new bubble, do this exercise again. It is worth it. Technology can be the foundation of a fantastic life, but only when you deploy it, only when you deploy it for things you really care about. And that takes some work to figure out what those are. It takes some work to keep that focus sustained as well. All right. So Vanish, I, I hope I've inspired you or other people out here who are similarly feeling between a pandemic and the U.S. election and all the stuff that was going on, that phone is now glued into their hands. Now is a perfect time to declutter and restart. Do it now. You'll finish right before spring starts. And like, you know, well-suited to that season, you'll be able to emerge much more meaningful, much more gracious, much more satisfying, effective, resilient life. So let's all let's all think about that. I think we all probably could use a declutter. So Vanish, thank you for spurring the conversation. 
Uh, and with that, let's spur the end of this episode. If you want to submit your own questions, go to calnewport.com slash podcast to find out how. Remember my new book, A World Without Email, is available now. It's coming out on March 2nd, but if you pre-order, there are really cool things I will give you, so please pre-order if you are considering buying the book. I'll be announcing those cool things soon. Otherwise, I will be back on Thursday with our next Habit Tune-Up mini-episode. Until then, as always, stay deep. <laughs>